Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Days of Roar, Detroit Tigers podcast brought to you by the Detroit Free Press. I'm Mark Gorash. I'm with my partner, Free Press beat writer, Evan Petzold. And somehow we have survived another week of Tiger baseball. How you doing, Ev? Yeah, Mark, doing all right. It's been a long week of baseball with um, not many wins. Granted, there were two in Houston. Um, that I thought were were pretty impressive. I was not there for that series. Jeff Seidel was out there for the free press covering that series in Houston. Now I'm back on the beat. Um, you know, now we now we move forward. Uh, Tigers played three games at home against the Red Sox. They're going to be heading on the road um, Monday, beginning today, um, to go and play the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, that series starts on Tuesday. So yeah, I mean it's a tough schedule. We've kind of talked about it all along, and it's a uh, it's been a rough start for the Tigers. But it's nice for me to be back home in Detroit. Um, I mentioned my cat several times on this show. I will mention them again. Um, Savannah too, of course. It's nice to be back home and around her and around family. Uh, coming off a, an Easter celebration, got a chance to go to church in the morning and hang out with some family in the afternoon. So um, some good vibes for me right now. Uh, but how are you doing, Mark? I, I don't ask you that enough. How, how have you been recently? Well, I'm doing pretty well. First, I'd like to wish everybody a happy Easter. Hope you had a great holiday weekend. I also like to wish all my people a happy Passover, uh, which I celebrated and got a chance to be with my family all the way from my 85 year old mother down to my 21 month old grandson. Uh, my nieces and nephews, it was pretty awesome. My son did the cooking. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, all together, I think we both had a pretty great week, minus the fact that uh, we had to watch Tiger baseball a lot. So that, that's the thing, Mark, too, real quick is, is I, I mean, I, I root for good stories. Like, I, I, you know, you don't root for the team, right? That's kind of like, you know, general, you know, kind of kind of beat writer thing. But I love good stories, and I was so jealous of Jeff. He got to go cover the two games um, where the Tigers just looked great in Houston, and you know Spencer Torkelson was coming alive, and Riley Green was coming alive, and the, the bats were great, and and they went out and they won two games against the 2022 World Series champs. Um, and I told him, I said I was jealous of him because I could just feel his emotion. Like you kind of latch onto it, um, you know, when guys are feeling good, they're going good, they want to talk to you, they want to have conversations. Um, that's kind of when the best storytelling happens is, is when the team kind of tells that story for you. And um, it hasn't been much of that since then. Um, it was a, a loss in Houston on the last day and then, you know, getting swept by the Red Sox and just feels like more of the same uh, of what we saw earlier in the season, right at the beginning there against the Rays. Well, it's um, it's head scratching, but also, you know, it's, it's not really that surprising when you look at the roster and you dive into it. So I'll put my positive spin on this, which is, we like to break things out in weeks. We do podcasts every week, and first week, 0-3. Second week, 2-4. Now sitting at 2-7. and seven. But when you look at the week as 2-4, and four, maybe we don't, we don't look at it quite as negatively. Those first two games in Houston, thank God for those first two games in Houston, showed us a little bit of some of the good things of what they could be, and... Aside from those two games, it's been seven games of hell. So pretty much, pretty much. No, I mean two, two and seven record, fewest wins through nine games since Tigers lost eight of their first nine in two thousand eight. We talked about last year and, and the year before, and just the rough starts that they got off to, and how you know you felt like before we even got to the summer months, the season was was kind of over, just in the sense of you know playing competitive baseball or, or being competitive or making things interesting or you know, showing some fight into the summer and, and, and leaving you thinking, well, you know, maybe, 
we didn't get any of that the last two seasons, and it doesn't look like we're going to get any of that this season. Well, I think it's a little early to write off a lot of things, even in the season where we went 69 and 61 in the last 129. The first 33 games were a nightmare. If you remember, I think they were 9 and 24 at one point, and it looked a lot it was like bad, it, but it they lo- turned it around. Yeah, yeah, it looked a lot like it looks now. Um, I hesitate to think that's happening only in the sense that learning a little bit about A.J. Hinch, he did have a bullpen to get him through his last 12 outs, which is his go-to way of managing. It doesn't seem like currently we have the makings of something like that. But let's get into a little bit of, in these first nine games, what we've learned And I caution everybody by saying in nine games, uh, there's really very little that you can make assumptions of. There are a couple of things, though, that are very, very concerning. And let's kind of jump into those, and then we'll talk about some things that are good. The the things that I've noticed kind of right off the bat are just, I think think trends is maybe a better way to put it as opposed to making these you know, big picture statements of, well, this isn't good or this player isn't good or or this or that, right? Like those things can change um, as the season rolls on. But I think just kind of like a a general standpoint, if you're looking at trends, I I see some position players with upside. I see some decent starting pitching that hasn't been able to finish key innings. And I've also seen inconsistent relievers who are sometimes thrown into the fire when, you know, maybe I think that, that the starters should get a chance to finish out the inning. And We'll talk about that later, but I, but I do think those are kind of the trends that I'm seeing, right? You go back to the Houston series and, and what they were able to do there, and you see the position players with upside. You, you see what Matt Veerling is able to do. You see what Spencer Torkelson can do. You see what Riley Green can do. We've seen at times what Nick Maton can do, um, just working counts. Look, I understand Nick Maton. Um, outside of Sunday's game, he went 0 for 4 with four punchies. That's no good. But outside of outside of Sunday's game, I think his at-bats have been pretty darn good. Really good. And that's impressive to see. Right, right. I mean, he's working deep into counts. He's making pitchers battle for everything that they're going to get. And he's drawing walks when the opportunities present themselves. So I think th- those are some encouraging things when you talk about young players um, having some success and trying to find their footing at this level and, and really trying to establish themselves. All four of those players are trying to do that. And we've seen it in bits and pieces. And we definitely saw it in those first two games in Houston so you know it's in there. Um, and that's where the upside piece comes in, right? Like, you're not going to be encouraged by what you're seeing. I understand. They scored one run on Sunday. They've been getting blown out. The run differential is is just is just it's putrid. It's terrible. I mean, it, it's miserable. But, but there are signs of an offense here. Even if Nick Maton and Matt Veerling are role players in the future and, and neither of those guys break out and are all-stars, you like the way they're handling their at-bats. I think there's some positive signs there. But I still think, Mark, and, and I want to hear your thoughts on this too, a, a lot of what they do this season, and, and maybe into the future a little bit, but as, as far as what they do this season on offense, it, does it all really just come down to Riley Green and Spencer Torkelson? Like, is that is is that really what it just comes down to? Because that's certainly how it seems to me. I've had a lot of people say that to me. You're saying that to me now, and I couldn't disagree with that premise more vehemently. If that's what everything in this season is about, they're going to suck for a really long time. I think they are merely a part of a bigger picture. They are part of other players that will be here before the season is over with. They need to start establishing a core. Can they be at the top of the food chain as far as leading the core? Definitely. Absolutely but they have to be part of a core. So if the season is dependent on two players and that's it, (laughs) this is going to be a really short tenure for Scott Harris. means he didn't do his job very well, and the team's going to continue to suck. So I couldn't disagree with you more. I, I think so far what we've seen can be crystallized in two things. To use a Scott Harris term, strike zone domination and where the hell is that where the hell is that throwing the baseball where the hell is that offensively strike zone domination currently mia okay 
two, two of my baseball mentors, Bruce Fields, Ken Howell, both great coaches, both great baseball players. They both said to me, Mark, don't ever, you know, I'm not really impressed by what guys can do sometimes. I'm much more interested in what guys can do all the time. The difference between a major league average regular and a triple A baseball player is a major league average regular can do stuff all the time, almost every day, almost every at bat. You know what you're going to get. They can leverage mistakes. They do good things given the opportunity. Triple A guys, sometimes, once in a while, sometimes not, don't really know what you're going to get. And right now, that's the entire roster of the Detroit Tigers. Yes, some guys are flashing more than others. Riley's flashing more than most guys. Torkelson flashing more than most guys. But when it really comes down to it and it's winning time and day after day, you don't know what you're going to get. And that is part of the necessary growth that needs to happen this year. And we need to find out who's sometimes, who's all the time. And that's kind of where we're at right now. It's been a lot of sometimes, not too much all the time. Well, that that's kind of how I feel. And that's why I asked you the question about Riley Green and Spencer Torkelson is because it's like, those are two guys that you expect to be all the time. Um, and, and Riley's maybe been a little bit more all the time than, than Spencer has so far. But the, the next question then is like, okay, who else kind of emerges? Like, is there anybody on this roster that really has the potential to emerge? Can, can Kerry Carpenter emerge and be an all the time type guy? Can Ryan Kreidler, you know, can he hit enough to, to emerge as an all the time kind of guy? Nick Maton, like Matt Veerling. I guess it's a good thing that some of these are unanswered questions because and that means there's something to find out. And, and don't get me wrong, there are also guys in the minor leagues too. And we can touch on some of that as we go. But I mean, that's Parker Meadows, that's Andre Lipsius, that's Justin Henry Malloy, Wenzel Perez. I mean, th- those are some guys that are kind of right at the forefront of my mind in terms of position players, at least that are are you going to be an all-the-time guy or are you going to be a sometimes kind of guy? And you're right. That is is the difference. That's something that, again, you you bring in Javier Baez, Mark, and you expect him to be an all-the-time type dude. And he has just not shown up whatsoever, um, you know, through these first nine games of the season. Um, He's he's almost nowhere to be found. Hitting 121, two walks, believe it or not, um, with seven strikeouts, just uncompetitive at bat after non-competitive at bat over and over and over. There are, there are situational moments where you just say, okay, just put the ball in play and he strikes out. There are times when you say, okay, let's try to work a deep count and get a good pitch to hit. And he's swinging first pitch and it's it's a terrible first pitch outside the zone and it's a, a rollover ground out. Like Javi Baez has probably been the most disappointing part of this season for me so far. I, I'm willing to to watch green grow i'm willing to watch torkelson grow i'm willing to give like i'm willing to watch ryan kreidler take reps and and i, I love what he's doing in the field he aj has aj hinch has said it best right he's an impact player on defense can he hit enough to stick around we're about to find out pretty soon um because you know in this league the clock ticks and there are players that are pushing for opportunity the, the list kind of goes on and on of guys that you want to figure out okay what are they going to be what are they not going to be the one guy who you expect to be an always guy is the guy that you signed to a six-year, $140 million deal, and that's Javi Baez. He hasn't done it whatsoever. I think you could live with the inconsistencies of Javi Baez that even if he was you know, a sub-200 hitter when he was slumping, if he occasionally hit the ball out of the ballpark once in a while, especially with a couple yeah. guys on base— you could probably deal with the fact that he was so inconsistent at the plate. The biggest issue that Javi Baez has had as a Detroit Tiger is aside from the month, uh, you know, the last six weeks of 2022, he just hasn't hit the ball out of the ballpark. Defensively, better than we think. Still crazy frustrating the last few days. Keeps throwing the ball. It's mixed feelings for me. It's mixed feelings. Keeps for throwing me. the ball into the ground. Javi Baez 
if you just watch him and maybe we're reading too much into that, doesn't look like he's having too much fun. I can tell you that. So, well, I, I mean, I understand that though. You're you're playing for a team that's two and seven and looks like they're going nowhere. I understand. You know, I understand. I, I get it, right? I mean, his best years um, were obviously when he was younger in his career, right? I mean, we have to remember that. You know, Javi Baez is now 30, and, and things change a little bit as you get into your 30s, just in terms of, you know, the, the body, the way that you play, and, and the way that you take care of yourself with pregame prep and postgame prep. And that there are just extra things that you have to do as you get older, but he plays his best when he's in the most intense environments. And Tigers don't really give off intense environments, and there, there definitely aren't intense environments at Comerica Park, just in the sense of, you know, you're not going to pack that house every day. You know, Comerica Park isn't going to be isn't going to be loaded with fans all the time. That's not to say that the fans, you know, aren't willing to show up, but they also they want to see a good product on the field, and that's not that's not what's happened so far. But yeah, I mean, you can live with Javi Baez's strikeout problems. You know, if he's if he's hitting some dongs out of the ballpark, look at what he did in 2021: 184 strikeouts. You know, that led the National League and hit 31 home runs and hit 265, and you're all good with that. Right, like there's no, there are no problems there whatsoever. I mean, going back to 2019, 156 strikeouts, 29 homers. The year before that, 167 strikeouts, 34 homers. If he's going to strike out a ton, if he's going to have uncompetitive at bats at times, you know, fine by everyone. But he has to go deep. He he has, he doesn't have an extra base hit yet this season, Mark. Yeah, he looks a lot like uh, the exit velocity is Zach McKinstry, which will. Just kind of leave it that. Well, that's that's uh, that's that's a different discussion. That's still head scratching to me, but he got a chance to pitch, though, Mark. He did. He yeah, gave up a two run shot, but got his chance to pitch. I'm I'm glad Zach got a got a turn on the mound. Good for him. So let's also touch on a little bit about something that surprised us yesterday, and we're not going to dig mm-hmm. too deep into it, but we do want to share our opinion about it, which is Austin Meadows has gone to the DL with anxiety. It's something that's extremely unfortunate. It's something that I think both you and I have want to make very clear that we both have experience with, and we are very, very sympathetic to the circumstances and anybody that does not feel that way obviously has never suffered or had a close friend or family member suffer from anxiety issues. I'm sure it's very frustrating for Austin. Uh, he thought maybe he was on his way back from it. You, It's an, a very insidious type of situation. You don't have control over when it pops back up or when it's going to rear its head. And we wish him the best. Just to kind of to give the, the news and to kind of explain some of what happened as, as it unfolded. Um, obviously, it was before Saturday's game, and um, the Tigers had actually told Akil Badu, who was playing in AAA Toledo, to be ready to come to Detroit. And he had got that message after Friday night's game. Um, and he was playing with, with the Mud Hens in Omaha, and he traveled to Detroit on Saturday morning and basically kind of got the green light to come on over. And, and yeah, so, so Akil woke up at 4.30, took a flight at 7.30, and ended up, you know, having to, to to drive around in Ohio to get some bags and then drive up to Detroit. And he ended up getting there in time and he started in the game on Saturday. And, and so as all that's happening, um, 30 minutes before first pitch, the Tigers make the announcement that Austin Meadows is going to be going on the injured list with anxiety. And and, and first things first is you, is you feel for him. And, and it's really a bummer. I mean, I, I, I sat and I talked to him on on FaceTime for about 45 minutes before spring training uh, for a Q&A story that I did. And he talked a lot about just all the things that he did to, to kind of, you know, get himself back to where he wanted to be in the offseason. Talks about transforming his mental health with a team of therapists and, and also changing his physical health too after just being sidelined for so long and really getting back into the workouts and feeling the best that he has felt in a, in a really long time. He talked about the mental health impacting him most right when the COVID-19 uh, pandemic hit. And it, it kind of hasn't been the same since then for him. And then he mentioned the trade to Detroit, you know, when he was traded right before opening day in 2022, that was April, 2022, really sparked a, a, a resurgence of that, uh, of that mental health, you know, struggle that he's having, that anxiety. And 
called it an anxiety monster and talked about having panic attacks and, you know, just some things that he went through, you know, last season. And it, 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 he seemed optimistic though, right, Mark? Because he seemed like he was, you know, on the right track. He had a team of therapists in Detroit, you know, that were kind of in place to help him. He had his newborn daughter and his wife that were going to be in Detroit with him um, throughout the season. And, and so, you know, I was shocked when I saw the news uh, of what happened. Again, first and foremost, like it's just you, you send your prayers out to him and, and you just pray that, you know, he's going to be able to make it through because I've been there. Um, you know, you've mentioned that you've been there and, and so many of us have been there. And it's something that, you know, a lot of men, I feel like don't don't really like to talk to. So I commend him for coming out and, you know, saying that he's dealing with this and that he needs to take a step back. Um, but man, it, it, it's just really tough. It's really tough considering where he was coming into spring training with his brother in camp. And it just seemed like things were really looking forward. And then you get hit with this news out of nowhere. Man, you, you just hope that he gets through it. You just hope that he gets through it, regardless of the baseball stuff. As a man, um, you just pray for him. Base- That's how I feel. Baseball's a game of failure. Really can play on your mind. And anxiety is a mental health disease that is very serious, very difficult to navigate. People do get better. We wish them the best. You know, from a baseball standpoint, without delving too deep into this, what I will say is if you're the Detroit Tigers, you can't really plan on when you think Austin Meadows is going to return from this. And you just have to move on trying to assume that he may not play very much this year. It's it's a very difficult disease to navigate and you know it's not like a broken bone or a sprained ligament where you have a timeline of how long it's going to take to get better. It's not that kind of injury. So uh, we wish him the best and uh, we hope people will you know have some empathy for somebody that's truly suffering. I don't think anybody feels worse about this than than Austin Meadows does. All right, well, we're going to take our first break. We'll be back in a moment. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. All right, I want to start touching on some things that we discussed a little bit last pod, but... I think we at least want to bring the light, our opinions about a few things and understand that we're reading way more into this than we know. This is purely speculation, what makes a podcast fun. But I'm a little curious uh, how the dynamic is between A.J. Hinch and Scott Harris about now. You know, A.J., if you really pay close attention to him, kind of let you know how he feels about things, not just in the post game. And he was a little fired up today in the post game. If you were listening to what mm-hmm. he had to say, I know I enjoyed it and I would expect nothing less, but more importantly, how he deploys some of the players tells you a little bit how he's feeling about it. And I think we kind of touched on this about Zach McKinstry last pod and He did nothing to lead you to believe that, you know, Zach McKinstry is now the 26th player on the Detroit Tigers, and he is not really getting many, or let's just say that his opportunities have dwindled. And uh, he played right field today, didn't start, Scope played second. And who who can blame Hinch? You know, he's searching at this point in time. So I think that's a point of contention. And I think as we mentioned in passing last Monday, he cannot be very happy with what he's been provided uh, as a bullpen. And we talked about this, but looking back on it now, 
Tiger's payroll, which was, you know, somewhere between 16 and 18 last year in Major League Baseball, it for sure was not, you know, a, a bargain basement payroll. It was about 135 million last year. It's about 120 million right now. And 32 million of that is for a DH that'll get 300 at bats. That's, you know, not something that they could have ever planned on. So it's not exactly an expensive payroll. Yet, you know, you'd think that he could have understood how his manager managed. And that was pretty easy to understand if he would have done some homework. And yet he refused to spend $10 million and get himself two major league caliber relievers and at least give A.J. Hinch an opportunity to manage a baseball game without it being roulette. So, you know, I know that frustrates you a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it does. I think I go right to the home opener. I I go to Thursday's loss and the situation that unfolded there in the sixth inning, there were two runners on, two outs in a tie game. And um, A.J. Hinch has to go to Jose Cisnero, who in his previous start had given up a three-run shot to Jordan Alvarez in Houston. And so he goes to Cisnero and, you know, it's a situation where, all right, like you you, you got to get this out. Like he, he has no better options. That That's kind of what it comes down to is it's basically Jose Cisnero or Alex Lang. Neither of them, in my opinion, throw enough strikes. Um, neither of them look clean right now or, or crisp whatsoever, but it's the highest leverage situation. The Tigers needed to strand those two runners above all else. And who'd they go to? They went to one of their better high leverage relievers, and that's Jose Cisnero. And what happened was, you know, he poorly located a two-strike fastball. He thought it was a really good pitch on the outside edge. The Tigers wanted it more up. Um, he put that ball more, you know, kind of you know, right on the outside edge as opposed to going up and in and all of a sudden it's a two run homer and the tigers are down and and you just wonder mark like you scratch your head and you think man like what if the tigers just had a different high leverage reliever they could go to that wasn't named jose cisnero in that situation what if they had andrew chafin or what if they had michael fulmer andrew chafin was I, i thought it was a slam dunk to bring him back but it didn't end up working out michael fulmer i'm not sure if the tigers were really even interested in in getting too deep into discussions with him and those are two guys. You look at what Andrew Chafin is doing for the Diamondbacks and you go look at what Michael Fulmer is doing for the Cubs and it's pretty darn good. And it makes you think, you know, is that a game that they could win if they would have had, um, you know, one of those guys or both? Maybe. Um, again, we don't know because it's a game of what if, but at the same time, you know, AJ Hinch hasn't been given a bullpen that he can really rely on. It's all about getting these last 12 outs. We've talked about it over and over again, but that's the truth. And, AJ Hinch is best when he has a great bullpen to work with. Not not even a great bullpen, ju- just a good bullpen to work with. And it's a lot of mix and matching right now. It's a lot of throwing random, you know, parts at the wall and seeing if they stick. But this th- this it's a disaster. The bullpen is a complete disaster. There's no one that you feel fully comfortable with. The guy that I probably feel the best about right now is Jason Foley. I think he's pitched pretty pretty good, but other than that, it's 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 almost impossible to feel good about anybody that they're rolling out there right now, wouldn't you say? Look, you feel good about Jason Foley because he threw a dominant four hitter outing today, and <laughs> yeah. But right. I think you know if uh, on Tuesday night you're bringing him in to face Vlad Guerrero Jr. with uh, two on and one out in the fifth of a tie game, you're not exactly wrapping your arms around that and going. Yeah, we'll take care of this, no problem. So, you know, it's it's a disaster. There's right? nobody that gives you that feeling. There's nobody that gives you that feeling Correct. of, oh yeah, got him. Right, we're good. It's that, that, that's not there. That doesn't exist. You're still hoping. It's still like buying a lotto ticket every time you bring a reliever in, and everything that worries you about Alex Lang, you know, is still you know apparent in every outing. He has no fastball command, and you pray he spins enough pitches once things are going poorly to get out of the inning, and most of the time he does. And yes, it's early, and guys haven't really gotten into you know rhythms about throwing strikes. But at the same time, you know you virtually have zero chance to win unless you hit your way into 
a crazy, crazy day at the plate when you have, you know, a bullpen that you're going to need to get, you know, between 10 and 12 outs every day. And it's impossible to know what you're going to get from that. So, I mean, which is what they did in Houston, though. I mean, they, they hit their way to those two wins, but that offense isn't going to produce like that every single night. We've already seen that through nine games. Yeah. And you, you need your bullpen to slam the door. And listen, I, I've said nice things about Scott Harris. I still don't mind as much as most people do their position player situation outside of second base. But, and I think as the season grows, their hitting will grow, but you know what he's done with this bullpen and the position he put his manager in is just a hundred percent unacceptable. And I don't think there's any other way to explain it. As far as the starting pitching goes, I think my feeling and small childish tantrum the day they signed Matthew Boyd is on the record. Boyd hasn't been terrible but he's been far from good. Turnbull, I really need to see something from shortly. Not not real encouraging what I'm seeing, not seeing much swing and miss. I'm a big Joey Wentz fan. I'm going to write yesterday off as a bad outing. But, you know, their, their starting rotation is also had its issues. You're going to get Lorenzen back here soon. And, you know, right now you're, you got a two and seven baseball team. You're going to play Toronto, who does nothing but mash at home. And we'll we'll see what happens. It's kind of the same feeling though we had going into Houston. That worked out fine. So we'll we'll have to see what happens. So I don't I, I don't know though. I think look like the starting pitchers haven't really helped out the relievers either. Like I, I understand you know how you feel about the bullpen, and I I feel I, I share the same feelings. Just considering um, the talent of those pitchers and the situations that they're being asked to deliver in, but also. the starting pitchers haven't been able to throw strikes. We've seen that over and over and over again through nine games. Relievers have inherited 22 run, 22 runners from starters and and 12 of those runners have scored. Um, A lot of that is because of walks. So I I think it's easy to point to the relievers because you say, Oh, there's not many power arms to get outs in big situations. But also I feel like the starters deserve some of that blame for the lopsided scores. I mean, both of these two teams uh, or both these two groups of pitchers, starters and relievers, have thrown about 40 innings this season, and the starters have 23 walks and 23 strikeouts, and the relievers have 14 walks and 31 strikeouts. So the starters aren't doing the relievers many favors with the way that they're walking hitters. And in all nine games, the starters have failed to provide a clean runway for the relievers. So basically in every game, a fresh reliever has been asked to come in and take over for a laboring starter in the middle of the inning. Yes. And that's, and, and, but many times it's because too many walks. It's a, it's a walk problem. It's a dominate the strike zone problem. What was promised hasn't been followed up on in that way. All right. So let me give you one of my little points of data. Detroit is currently allowed the most inherited runners to score in Major League Baseball at 12. Their inherited runner percentage is at 60%, which is tragically low for any bullpen. So they've entered with 20 inherited runners, which I think is 27th in baseball, and they've allowed the most inherited runners to score. So I understand your premise of they're constantly being put in a bad situation, but I think, you know, for lack of a better way of saying this, I still call a little bit of bullshit on this because my answer is do your damn job. Your job is exactly that. When you need to come in and get one or two outs to get you out of an inning and to keep the game, you know, reasonably within distance of being competitive and you keep allowing inherited runners to come in three or four at a time, it it makes for a pretty, you know, unfun baseball game after, you know, that happens. And it's just happened way, way too much. I get it that you're saying starters need to do a better job. Yes, but relievers do your damn job. Okay. Well, some of that too, though. I mean, look, you can't avoid what happened to Spencer Turnbull 
in Tampa Bay. Like when that happens, of course it's going to be in the middle of an inning. When Joey Wentz has his blow up, it's it's going to be in the middle of an inning. I get that. But I go back to Matt Manning's start in Houston where he gets Jordan Alvarez to line out. He strikes out Jose Abreu looking, and then he walks Kyle Tucker. And the next batter is Corey Jolks, and Jason Foley gets brought in. Now Jason Foley, you know, gets a, a weak fly ball and, and innings over, and that's fine. But I want to see Matt Manning finish that inning. I want to see Matt Manning face Corey Jolks and and try to get through it, finish out the sixth, and then give Foley a clean seventh inning. And um, that that that's kind of my take on it. And that not that that's that big of a deal. Like I, I understand your point that you're making. Like if you're a reliever and you're coming in and there's a runner on base, just do your job and get the one out or, or get the two outs that you need to get. But I think in certain situations, I, I'd like to see some of the starters, you know, finish out their innings and show that they can power through it. Even if the matchup isn't entirely favorable. Um, I, I want to see what these guys have. Like I want to see if Matt Manning can go out there and, and do it. I want to see if Matthew Boyd can go and finish it. And, and, and kind of walk off the mound feeling good about himself. Like, yeah, I just finished that. Um, of course, that could backfire, right? And, and then, um, you know, A.J. Hinch has to take all the questions about why he left the guy in. So I understand it's kind of a double-edged sword in that way. But, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I just think, you know, pitching staff as a whole needs to do a better job. I think it's, it's do your damn job, not only for relievers, but for starters as well. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the offense. The offense is, aside from two games, been you know, unbelievably abysmal, uh, worse than last year. Coming into today, and today was not very good, they had a 52 WRC+, plus, which means they were 48% worse than league average. That placed them 30th out of 30 baseball teams, and that's coming off a season where, I don't remember if they were 28th or 29th, but it was one of the two. They had an ISO, which is basically how much power you're hitting for, of 092. Uh, that is just tragically bad, which means they're not hitting for any power. I think they had four homers on the year, or basically not quite as good as Adam Duval's season has gone this year. And they had scored 26 runs before today, which I also think was either last or second to last in baseball. I know you looked at some of these numbers too. So all in all, not acceptable. Um, to place all the blame on Torque and Riley Green is kind of foolish because, to be honest with you, I think both of them have had a pretty decent amount of good swings. Um, Veerling had a good game or two. Maytine hasn't done anything yet. Baez has been absent. Scope has been absent. You know, they really, you know, Eric Haas is really truly struggling. I did tweet something about Eric today. He, I think, hit 172 in April and May last year. And then after that, the the last four months of the season, uh, I think he had, you know, close to a 140 WRC plus for the last four months. So I can tolerate a slow start by Eric Haas. He's not going anywhere and he's at least has some legacy of performing well. But I want to get a little bit into Riley Green, but you, you tell me what your thoughts on the offense. You've seen them take swings the last few days. What what, what are you seeing? Look, yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged by Riley Green, Spencer Torkelson, Matt Veerling, Kerry Carpenter, uh, Jake Rogers, Nick Maton. I know he hasn't hit, but um, go look at the walks and the strikeouts. It's really not that bad. I, I think he just needs some time to settle in. But yeah, like outside of that, it's it's the veteran guys that they just aren't getting the job done. Javier Baez is not playing very well. Miguel Cabrera is not playing very well. Jonathan Scope is not playing very well. And he is now in a platoon role. And I think we need to talk about that um, just in the sense of kind of what's next for Jonathan Scope. Cause I do think that, you know, that's a guy that, you know, you, you think would be able to hit 20 plus home runs and, you know, be able to hit, you know, 260, 270. And we're not seeing any of it. We're not seeing any of it. The, the at-bats are completely non-competitive. Um, so some of the young guys have been encouraging, but like, look, the offense as a whole, yeah, I mean, coming out of Sunday's game, it's a four-way tie between the Tigers, Royals, Marlins, and Athletics for you know teams with 27 runs. That's worst in baseball. Uh, the Tigers are at 27th in baseball with 23 walks, and they're at 22nd in baseball with 90 strikeouts. So, yeah, not a lot of good things. Um, the batting average is low. 
Um, the ISO, as you'd mentioned, is, is pretty rough. So maybe a slight improvement in walks and strikeouts. And by that, I mean like they were you know dead last over the last like five years in both those categories. So maybe like a, a teeny, teeny, tiny improvement there, but still not enough to say that you're dominating the strike zone, uh, not even close. The Jonathan Scope one to me is, is interesting. I mean, the guy who's making $7.5 million in the final year of his contract, um, you're paying that whether he plays for you or whether he doesn't. So I think you know, regardless of what they do there, it, 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 you're paying that money, you know, no matter what happens. But Mark, I mean, are you at a point now where you're ready to see what guys like Tyler Nevin can do or Andy Abanez can do? I think it probably starts with Tyler Nevin, um, just considering that he's playing a lot of third base in Toledo, also plays some first base and can play some corner outfield. Scope has kind of moved over to now being more of a third baseman than a second baseman. Um, Scope is only playing, for the most part, against left-handed pitchers rarely playing against right-handed pitchers. Um, he's got a couple walks, which is which is impressive because that's pretty rare for him, but not hitting the ball, still striking out a lot. It just doesn't really look comfortable. I know it's only been a handful of games and he's in a platoon role, so he's not getting a ton of opportunities. But at what point do you think, look, this guy's got a 4.1% walk rate in his career. It ain't getting any better. What, what time do you cut bait? Well, here's what I have to say about Jonathan Scope. Uh, been a good pro, but real simple. They're paying him the seven and a half million, whether he's here or not here. Yeah, no matter what. And at some point in time, if he's hurting you more than helping you, you're still paying the money. What's he doing here? I mean, if you can bring somebody else up that can help you more than John Scope is helping you, why is Jonathan Scope here? So, and it's pretty simple to me. It's pretty cold. It's, you know, you're stuck for the money, period, end of story. So who they bring up, that's something they got to figure out. Ibanez got three homers, plays three positions, Nevin. I mean, these are all guys that have never really played regularly. Malloy, people want to bring up uh, Jahan. I'd like to see him keep getting more at-bats at Toledo. He is hitting reasonably well, walking a ton, needs the experience at third base, hasn't hit for any power at all at Toledo yet. So I think he needs the at-bats. But, you know, I have other issues. I I, I think I kind of teased this a little bit, but I've been doing some dive on uh, Riley Green and is, you know, well as he's kind of scuffled his way to at least acceptable production so far, I, I'm starting to get concerned because I've started to pay attention to how his at-bats are going in a specific part of his game, going back all the way to when, you know, in 2022 included. And I've come to notice that Riley Green does not pull the ball well or make, you know, do, do damage to the pull side of the field literally at all. And not only that, he hits the ball into the ground at an excessive rate. So I went back, I had our buddy Chris Brown help me a little bit. We went back and looked at some Savant numbers. And when Riley Green pulls the baseball, almost 74% of the time he hits the ball on the ground. And if you hit the ball on the ground, you're not going to do too well. His pull numbers are are pretty low. He, you know, his his slugging percentage is in the threes. He, I look back, I think he pulled one home run to dead right in his career so far. Almost all of his power is apo or to the left of second base or slightly to the right of second base. And that's, that's where he hits the ball hard. It's a swing flaw. It's kind of rolling over on things. And you're going to start to see major league pitchers try to exploit that, you're going to see Riley Green getting pounded on the inside part of the plate more and more and more as each series goes by. It's something to pay attention to and to see if they can't help him uh, make a small adjustment to see if they can get him to beat the pitch to the spot out front. I think Torkelson is a tremendous example of small changes making big impact. And, you know, Spencer hits the ball hard quite a bit, you know, even when he's making outs, he's hitting the ball hard at least once a game, if not more. 
and he's beating the pitch to the spot where he did that almost never last year. He's doing it often this year. And if Riley Green wants to go from being a 265, 270 hitter who only uses, you know, 50% of the field, he's going to have to work hard to try to expand his game to be able to hit the ball to the pull side. And I think you'll agree with me, Ab, you know, starting around May 1st going into September, the place in Comerica Park where the ball flies by far the best is to straight right field. So it'd be a shame if that's not part of Riley Green's game and he needs to start getting the ball in the air and he needs to start being able to pull the ball with authority. Well, that's the conversation that we've kind of been talking about for quite a bit of time, really going back to, to coming into spring training, just where the ground ball rate was last season. And Riley talked about trying to get to these pure thoughts at the plate. Um, and he, he said that he spent a lot of time in the offseason working on getting pitches that, you know, were kind of down by his knee. And, and he was able to turn on and, and drive down you know, basically and try to take it right to the foul pole, like a direct pull. And we haven't seen it translate so far. I wonder if it's a velocity thing. I mean, maybe it's a bat path thing. Maybe it's a combination of both. Maybe it takes too long for him to get his barrel over the plate because of how compact his swing is. And, you know, obviously when you're late on a pitch, you know, the barrel becomes tiny and it's harder to make contact with a smaller target. Maybe that's, that's the case. Um, but it's interesting. You go back and you look at some of his heat maps and you look at his ground ball rates from, from back in the 2021 season when he was crushing the minor leagues, he didn't struggle to elevate anywhere inside. I mean, he was able to take those pitches and he was turning on those pitches. Um, and we, we saw some video of it as well, if you, do, if you don't forget. But it's confusing to me because he was able to turn on pitches in AAA and in AA in 2021. And then suddenly when he gets to the big leagues, he's not able to turn on those pitches in the same way. And you're seeing a ton of ground balls when teams are throwing him inside and um, really the only way that he's elevating right now when this was true last year too was you know middle and up basically were the, the two areas where he was able to elevate the ball get it in the air and do some damage whereas in 2021 that wasn't the case he was able to get to those inside pitches so that makes me wonder maybe it's a velocity thing and the combination of velocity and you know the bat path it could that be a, a reason for some of these struggles and not being able to get the barrel over the plate against that velocity. Maybe um, I'm not going to act like I'm a hitting coach and know what I'm talking about, but um, I, I'm interested to know your thoughts. You've seen a lot mm -hmm. of baseball. You've been, you've been watching for a long time. I mean, does that kind of make some sense and as to what we're seeing? Bat, bat pass are a function of swing flaws. So yeah, he's got a, he's got an attack. He's very sensitive about his swing though, too. Yeah, I mean, and, it was a swing and, crafted by I his dad and he's had it forever. I don't and, blame him. And I would be too, but I think if you sat down and had a talk with him about this, he would acknowledge it's an issue for him and an issue that needs to be addressed and how they address it is, you know, why you have three hitting, three hitting coaches and, and a lot of video. Okay. It's, it's an attack angle issue. It's a rolling over issue it's been going on for a while and it's going to get worse before it gets better if they don't address it and start working on fixing it, which I am sure they're A, aware of it and B, working on it. It just, it is what it is. Would you agree, Mark, though, that that's the difference between him being a great player and, and him being a good player? I think it's the next phase of his game. Okay. I think I like where his game's at. He's a good player now. In order to be a very good player, he's going to need to fix this. I agree. So, all right, we're going to take our last break. We'll be back. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. Well, we 
got an interesting week coming up. You got Toronto on the road. You got uh, the Giants at home. I know you are going to what taking the tunnel or the bridge across on the 409 i'll take the bridge i'm going to go up to uh up to port huron and go through you know through sarnia and and head over that way it seems like i um have my easiest trips going that way and i like driving through toronto as opposed to to flying i've never flown to toronto i guess but um i drove once and i really enjoyed it and i thought it was easy and it gives me the luxury to right when that game ends and i'm out of there um after the series finale i'm able to book it back here and um, try to get as much sleep as possible. So you, I'm I'm driving, and uh, it's about, we'll see how it goes. It's about a three and a half hour ride. If I it's remember, really right. yeah. it's really not that bad. It's really not that bad. No, it's not. It's like kind of like driving to Cleveland a little bit in distance. So basically, that should be fun. Good ballpark. Really, really good baseball team. Have some mm-hmm. phenomenal players. Just you know, to Springer, Bichette, Guerrero. Chapman. Chapman. I mean, it's it'll be a gauntlet to go there. And then they have the... Don't gi- forget about their catchers either. Yeah, they have some... Well, Jansen's been struggling. Kirk can hit if it was the middle of winter. So good baseball team will really make you pay for mistakes. And uh, got a few there. And then we come back, play the Giants. Should be an interesting weekend for Scott Harris. Giants are... Not a great baseball team, but not necessarily a lot worse than the Red Sox are. So we saw what the Red Sox could do to the Tigers if the Tigers don't play better. I'm hoping by playing every day that maybe they can start getting into some rhythm because, you know, if if not, it's mentally really a drag to keep getting your ass kicked every day. Um, and I'll be curious to see if they can improve, you know, their consistency level and at least start having some better days from time to time. I mean, it's been seven very terrible baseball games out of the nine. Uh, hopefully they can at least start being more competitive on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, Mark, it's a long time until we get to mid-May when the Pirates come to town to Comerica Park. I mean, that's that's really the Tigers' first chance where you go into a series and you say, okay, like they, they they might be able to beat up on the Pirates a little bit. Until then, it's it's a really tough schedule. Tuesday, it's going to be Matt Manning against Alec Manoa. Wednesday, Eduardo Rodriguez against Kevin Gausman. And Thursday, Spencer Turnbull against Chris Bassett. Those are the pitching matchups coming up for the Tigers against the Blue Jays. That Manoa's does, pretty good. That, Gausman's pretty good. Bassett's pretty good. Um, it doesn't sound it's tough. It doesn't sound like they're getting. Uh, Encouraging news going to Toronto. That's three pretty good pitchers, although Bassett has been struggling a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about some things. The minor league season opened this week. Some things happened. I would encourage everybody, if you want to get good video or a fast look at what some of the Tiger minor leaguers are doing, and I hate to plug somebody else's stuff on our podcast, but go to Tiger's Minor League Report. They do great stuff. You can watch a cut-up of the day's starting pitcher, and you can get an idea what's going on. They had a super good performance from Ty Madden yesterday that was pretty exciting. For those of you that don't know, Ty Madden, uh, high draft choice two years ago from, I think, Alabama. And he is a testament to what the Tigers player development system has been able to do with a few people. They they did a lot of work with Joey Wentz, and it looks like now they've done a lot of work with Ty Madden. I don't know. Did you get a chance to take a look at that or no? I kind of watched little bits and pieces of it, but um, Ty Madden from Texas, by the way, Dylan Smith from Alabama. Right. Either way. Um, yeah, no, I mean, look, guys were talking about it in the press box, all right? It was it was going on during a Tigers game, and you know there are a few of the, the writers there that like to you know watch the minor leagues on their iPads, um, as the big league game is going on. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there were words about strikeouts and um, what, what was it? Ten strikeouts, no hits over four innings or yeah. something like that. Mark, I know you were paying closer attention to it than I was, but it looks like he's got a little bit of a leg kick to kind of sink some things up and and getting himself to tunnel in some pitches now. I mean, it, yeah. it looked, looked pretty sharp from what I saw. Yesterday, he, uh, he threw to 13 hitters, gave up zero hits in four innings. Struck out 10 of the 13, walked one. It was it was a hell of an outing. But more encouraging than that, 
player development's done a few things with his motion. Uh, he's got a little bit of a leg kick now. Two things coming out of the same tunnel. He had a little bit of a curveball last year. He had a lot of bit of a curveball <laughs> last night. I can't remember how many whiffs he had with it, but it were they were numerous swings and misses on his breaking ball. It's encouraging to see that they've helped him develop stuff that looked a lot more promising than what I was looking at last year. For those that know me, I was not a real big time Madden guy. What I saw, the tweaks they had made and you know the polish they had added to him yesterday, it was a much different looking pitcher with a much deeper, more efficient looking arsenal. So that was pretty promising. Nothing else really going on at Erie to speak of Cole Keith. You know, he's had a few good swings. They haven't hit too much at Erie yet. Down below, really not a lot of overly exciting things going on at either West Michigan or Lakeland. Um, nothing too much from Peyton Graham. Nothing too much from Christian Santana. Pacheco had a couple hits, I think, t- yesterday. But, you know, the minors are a place to be paying attention to. We'll do a lot more of that as the season goes on. Um, you know, and as as far as yeah, I'm much more concerned about what's going on in Toledo. What about you? No, hey, look, I want to say don't feel bad about giving Tigers minor league report the plug on the pod because I plug him into the story all the time. I mean, I was writing something, um, you know, Sunday morning before the game about Michael Lorenzen coming back soon, um, recovering from a, a left groin strain that he suffered in spring training. He pitched for Triple A Toledo on Saturday. And it seems like that's going to be his only rehab start. Um, he you know, gave up four runs on two hits and three walks with two strikeouts across two and a third and, you know, through 56 pitches. AJ Hinch talked about, you know, throwing strikes wasn't perfect, but, um, you know, he felt good and, and the stuff was okay. And it seemed like he got a pretty good workout and feels ready to come back. And, you know, I said, all right, I, I want to try to find a video of this guy throwing to kind of plug into the story, right? I always like to do that. If something's going on, I want to try to find a video. So, you know, readers that are going to freep.com to read my stuff can get a chance to kind of see some visual with it so they can, you know, make their own assessments at times too. I think that's important. And the first place I always go is Tigers Minor League Report because they do an amazing job of cutting up video, getting it out there and getting it out there quick. And I think that that's always, uh, that's always pretty important. So shout out to those guys. But yeah, Lorenzen's good. He's going to be back. Um, it sounds like he's going to pitch in the series against the Giants. So he's not going to pitch against the Blue Jays. Tigers already have their rotation set with Manning on Tuesday, Rodriguez on Wednesday, and Turnbull on Thursday. And then they come back home and play the Giants. It seems like we will see Michael Lorenzen make his first start in the big leagues with the Tigers, you know, in the old English D um, in that game. He's an interesting guy, someone to kind of keep tabs on. I mean, Scott Harris went out and grabbed him for one year, eight and a half million this offseason. He pitches the starter with the Los Angeles Angels last season for the first time in a full season uh, since he was a starter back in 2015. All the years in between, he was a a reliever um, pretty much exclusively. So it'll be interesting to see if they can get the most out of him. I know that they're uh, pretty excited about trying to optimize him. I am very concerned about his ability to consistently throw strikes. uh, But nonetheless, that's that's a Scott Harris guy, so someone to watch. I'll be curious to see who they send down. I would wager knowing how Scott Harris operates, it'll probably be Joey Wentz, but I think so too. Uh hopefully they don't wait a long time. Not that they have tons of relievers uh on their 40 man, but if that's if Wentz is getting demoted, he's getting demoted for Tuesday's game and they're going to bring up a reliever. Definitely. They'll, they'll then demote the reliever and bring Lorenzen up on the day he starts. So, you know, look for that. As far as other moves be interesting to see what the other moves are. I'm a believer that Parker Meadows will be up sooner than later if he starts to demonstrate anything close to what he did this spring. He hasn't really hit for power yet. Once he warms up from a power side, I would expect him to be up here playing center field and Riley to move to left pretty quickly unless miraculously Akil Badu starts doing a lot of good things. And what he did in the ninth inning today kind of took away from what was a pretty good day at the plate for Akil Badu, but that was not a very competitive at-bat to close the game in a 
leverage situation. So yeah, was, one, two, three out of there, right? Yeah. One, two, three, go take a seat. It's time to eat. So, uh, I also will say that once the pencil Perez is back playing, so I played three games this weekend at uh, Lakeland. It's something to pay attention to. Wenzel can hit, plays second base. He hits left-handed, and all those things are things that the Tigers need. So Switch hitter, actually. Yep. So something also to keep an eye on. Um, and, you know, for the week, it was pretty forgettable. Hopefully, we can have a lot more fun this week. So I think it might be time to wrap things up here, Ev. So that's about it. I'd like to uh, thank our executive producer, sports editor, Kirk Crawford, our uh, other executive producer, Anjanette Delgado, our producer, Robin Chan. As always, I'd like to thank my grandson, Braden Michael Gorash. I'd like to thank Savannah. I'm sure you're happy uh, that Evan's home. I'd like to thank uh, Evan's cat for behaving well. And, you know, I'd like to thank everybody for tolerating such terrible baseball. We'll be back again next week. Hopefully we'll have more fun things to talk about than uh, this two and four week. And I'd like to say peace. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.